Good morning to you. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Pastor J.D. and I are preaching uh, the same text this morning as we are just making our way uh, through this series of God's goodness in the middle, uh, that God is good right in the middle of what we are, what, what we are going through. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the guy who wrote this, his name is Paul. Pick me up in verse 1. Paul begins by saying, I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he thinks in me or hears from me. Now we're left wondering, who is this man? Verse 7 tells us, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, make note of this phrase, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should, it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why, Paul? For when I am weak, then I am strong. God, would you speak to us today? We, we need to hear a word from you. Thank you that you have left us your word. You are not silent. Father, I don't want to be an impediment, an obstacle to your people hearing and receiving the word, Lord God. So edit out everything that brings undue attention to myself and edit in everything that magnifies your name. Give us strength for the next leg of the journey. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Her name was Gianna Jessen. I don't know if you've heard of her. But when Gianna's mother was pregnant with her, her mother actually tried to abort her. Burning saline solution was dispersed all over Gianna's body in an effort to try to kill her in utero. But in his sovereign act of God, Gianna survived the attempted abortion. As you can imagine, she has suffered greatly. She has all sorts of physical ailments. In fact, she, she has cerebral palsy. 
Not long after being born, she was, she was turned over to a foster home. And then again, in a sovereign move of God, years later, Gianna would become one of the leading voices in the fight against abortion. She has stood on stages with presidents and prime ministers, taking up the fight for the unborn. What moves people all the time hearing Gianna is not her brilliance, it's not her oratorical ability. What moves them to tears and to action is her weakness. The Christian faith is not founded on strength. It is not ultimately built on the best, the biggest, the brightest, the smartest, the most gifted. Parenthetically, of course, throughout church history, has God used very bright, intelligent uh, individuals? Of course he has, but that's not the foundation of our faith. Need I remind us, Jesus Christ did not come to earth as a Roman senator. He came as an ethnic minority, born to poor parents in a manger. He came weak. In, in fact, that was kind of the reason why he was rejected, because everybody wanted him to come in strength. Their perception of a Messiah was that he would be this, this political juggernaut who would galvanize the troops, take down Rome. And when Jesus didn't do that, but actually said, I want you to pay, pay taxes to Rome, when he came in weakness, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was rejected. And the cherry on top, what our faith is really rested on, is not only is he rejected for, for not being a political messiah, he dies the most shameful death one could ever die. He, he was stripped naked and hung on a cross. Need I remind us, it bears repeating, our faith isn't founded on worldly strength. It's founded on weakness. In fact, friends, if, if you just kind of zoom out and just do a 35,000-foot view perspective of scriptures, what you'll see over and over again is God has an uncanny habit of, of stacking the odds against himself and then using the least likely to display his glory. If you want a real example of that, look in 1 Samuel. Here's Israel, and Israel looks around one day, and, and Israel looks at the other pagan nations she is surrounded by there, and, and she says, like them, we want a king. So what does Israel do? Israel chooses their king, and what do they look for? They look for worldly strength. They find a guy by the name of Saul. He is this tall, good-looking, strong individual. And again, parenthetically, if you're tall or good-looking, that's not saying God can't use you, John. The problem with Saul is he relies on his strength. He's filled with pride. And it's his reign that ends in disaster. So God says, we're going to do it all over again. But this time, this ain't a democratic election. I'm picking the next one. Samuel, I want you to grab your oil. Go to Jesse's house. Uh, Jesse lines up just about all of his sons. Uh, David 
is perceived as being so inferior, so weak, he, he doesn't even make the cut to even be presented as an option. Samuel just goes from one of Jesse's sons to the next one. Surely this may be the one. Surely this may be the one. God says, listen, let me stop you, Samuel. Man looks at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. And, and Samuel finds out there's one more. His name is David. He's out in the field tending sheep. They call David in. He's, he's described as being this little ruddy individual. And God says, that's the one. God just has a a place in his heart for those in whom the world would pass over to display his glory. I could go on and on and on and talk to you about a woman by the name of Ruth. She's a Moabite uh, immigrant on the brink of starvation who, when God gets through using her, ends up in the lineage of Jesus. I could, I could go to Mary. She's from a little podunk village called Nazareth, of whom it was said, can anything good come from there? In fact, I think I can say with strong biblical conviction that, that Mary is not the best-looking person in the world. Why? Because it says of Jesus that Jesus, Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to himself. Where did Jesus get his less than ordinary looks from? Not the Holy Spirit. So Ma Mary's an average looking girl from the wrong side of the tracks, and yet she becomes the one to birth the Messiah. That's why Paul would say, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the weak or foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Why? God is a glory hound. And he wants to remove, remove any kind of thought that it was your brilliance, your strength, your giftedness. It's all him. So if you came to church this morning and you feel as if, Man, who am I? If you feel inadequate, if you feel underqualified, you are just the kind of person God wants to use. This is why we come now to our text. You don't need to spend a day in seminary to figure this out. Over and over and over and over again, just a plain reading of the text. There's a word that keeps coming up over and over again. Weak, weakness, weak, weakness, weak, weakness. Paul talks about boasting in his weakness. What a juxtaposition. Now, what does this word mean? Paul is writing in a language called Greek, and the Greek word for weak or weakness, watch it now, it, it means to be dispirited. I love the image. It, 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 it means to go through something and to have the wind knocked out of you. It, 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 it means to be discouraged, literally without courage, to go through something, and the, and the courage seems to evaporate from your soul. Ever been there? Ever gotten some news and it felt like you were punched in your soul? Ever gone through something and, and you were dispirited? Maybe it was getting the report that, um, that you've got some kind of disease. Maybe it was a betrayal you didn't see coming. Maybe it was the pink slip that came your way. Maybe it was that college you were really hoping to get into and, and you didn't get it. The idea of weakness 
It's the idea of being dispirited. It's the idea of being discouraged. But watch it now. Paul in our text does not boast in weakness for the sake of weakness. That's called getting your identity in victimhood. There's a lot of that going around now. Something bad happens to me. My identity now is in my trauma. My identity now is in the fact that, that, that someone said something racist against me. My identity now is in my, fall, in, in my faults or flaws or failures. No, no, no. That's not what Paul is getting at here at all. Look at verse 9. But he says in verse 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why, Paul? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is redemptive weakness. Paul is connecting the situations and scenarios in life that we go through and seeks to leverage them as a spotlight to shine the attention not on my weakness but on the glory of God. So if I could define weakness for us. I want you to get this. Weakness, the way Paul means it, hear it now. If you miss this, you'll miss this whole little Sunday school lesson, is any flaw, failure, or suffering that we use to display the glory of Christ. Give it to you again. Weakness is any flaw, failure, or suffering we use to display the glory of Christ. I was just with Jonathan Irons this week. If you don't know that name, Google him. The great basketball player, Maya Moore, WNBA star, one that Sports Illustrated calls the the most winning female basketball player in history, married Jonathan Irons. Jonathan Irons, when he was 16, was walking down the street Two policemen jump out of their unmarked car, jump on this 16-year-old, throw him in the car. They take him to the police station. They take the, they take the tape out of the recording device. They don't allow anyone else in the room. And when they're done with Jonathan, at the end of the day, he is convicted for murder, a crime he didn't commit, and the state knew he didn't commit and sent to jail where he would spend the next 23 years of his life. But I was just with Jonathan this week, and to to, to be with Jonathan is to see a spirit with no bitterness, nothing but forgiveness and joy and grace. I said, Jonathan, where did this come from? He says, because while in jail I met Jesus. And now what is he doing? He is using that suffering to shine a spotlight on Christ. That's what it means to boast in your weakness. What this means is at some point, and I say this in pastoral love and care, at some point when we go through the situation, yes, we cry, yes, we sit with therapists, yes, we lean into community, but at some point you have to stop turning inward and ask the question, how can I use this cancer, how can I use this betrayal as a telescope to magnify the glory of God? Paul says, I'm not throwing a pity party. 
Is that you, friends? Is that you? Paul is writing this because there's a group of what he calls, if you read 2 Corinthians, he calls them this. There's a group of what he calls super apostles who have infiltrated the church at Corinth. These individuals have, are highly degreed. They're incredibly skilled communicators. They come from the right side of the tracks. They've, they've got the blue check mark on social media. You want to be around them. You want to follow these individuals. And yet they're coming into the church of Corinth and they're causing mayhem because they are attacking Paul and his message. And because of all their credentials, the Corinthians are, are just kind of given into this cult of celebrity. They're, they're following these super apostles and going, yeah, yeah you got to be right. And yeah, Paul is wrong. And, and Paul catches wind of this. And so he writes the Corinthians to kind of correct some things that these super apostles, he says that tongue in cheek, are, are wreaking havoc on them. And so, so what does Paul do? It, it, Paul does not go, let's compare resumes. Uh, let, let me tell you where I went to school, and let me tell you about Gamaliel who trained me. No, 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 no. Paul matches their strength with his weakness. He, he, he says, I'm not getting into a contest with you guys. And what does Paul do? He begins to talk about being caught up in the third heaven, being caught up in paradise, and he begins to talk about the thorn in the flesh. The idea of thorn in the flesh is figurative language for, for his suffering. Well, what is this suffering? I don't have time to get into all the theories. What I believe Paul is alluding to is a physical disability that he first experienced when he was stoned in Acts chapter 14 in Lystra. Read it sometime. In Acts chapter 14, Paul is sharing the gospel. It does not go well. The people reject him and they stone him. You need to understand that when a person was stoned in Jewish culture, the first thing they would do is they would take him to a high and elevated place like a cliff and they would push them off of the cliff. More times than not, the fall itself was enough to kill you. You fell, you're dazed, and then what now happens, the whole community gathers a large rocks and begins to pelt you in your head, in your body with the rocks. This this is what Paul endured in Lystra. Most scholars tell us that, that what he endured, he, he now had the lingering effects of this stoning that, that haunted him physically. Some scholars go as far as to say that Paul suffered with fits of ep epileptic seizures from time to time. Other scholars say uh, he actually had a, an eye problem. I think at low-hanging fruit, Paul dealt with an eye problem in his life. Galatians 4.15, Paul says this, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Two chapters later, he says to the Galatians, see with what large letters I'm writing to you and with my own hand. What is he pointing to here? He's got eye difficulty connected to his stoning. It didn't go away. And three times he says, I pleaded with God, remove this thorn, heal my body. I love it. <laughs> oh, this is the shouting part of the sermon. God says, I'm not going to get you out of it. I'm going to meet you in it. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I love it. 
the Greek word for sufficient means just enough. The closest image, I was racking my brain. How could I get you to understand this image of sufficiency? Just enough to make it through. The closest image I could give it to you, you doctors understand this. Talk to my sister. She's a medical doctor, OBGYN. I I said, talk to me about anesthesia. If you've ever gone through major surgery, you've experienced suffering. I said to my sister, talk to me about anesthesia. Why do they, why do you guys weigh people? And prepping them for surgery. She was like, simple. Because we would never give an 85-pound girl the same amount of anesthesia that we would give to a 200-pound man. That could kill her. And we would never give the same amount of anesthesia to a 200-pound man that we would give to an 85-pound girl. That ain't going to cut it. So we weigh you because for each individual, we want to give you just enough anesthesia tailor-made to your unique makeup. That's what it means for sufficiency. That what you're going through, God is giving you just enough tailor-made anesthesia of his grace to get you through it. By the way, have you ever looked at someone and all that they've gone through, all that they've endured, and you said to yourself, I could never go through that. Yes, you can. You've just never had to go through anything that required that much anesthesia slash grace. God is not a God of lack. He gives you just what you need to push through it. And so if you're going through something right now, I want to tell you in the power of God, you can make it. His grace is sufficient for you. How do I know I'm, I'm, I'm receiving his sufficiency in real time? How do I know, again, this whole idea of our series, God's goodness in the middle, we're, we're pushing against this idea that so many Christians have, that, that I go through something, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray, God delivers, God rescues, it ends, it resolves, and at the end of that, I go, ain't God good? No, 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 God, God is good then, but he was also good in the middle of it. How's he good in the middle of it? He's given you sufficient grace, just enough. Well, how do I know I'm receiving that? Three things. You know you're receiving that when there's vulnerability. When you can share what you're going through. Again, here's Paul, super apostles, all about strength. And what does Paul do? He just lays himself bare in our text. I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak. In fact, read through the whole book of 2 Corinthians. You can barely get out of a chapter in 2 Corinthians without hearing Paul talk about, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak. What is Paul doing? He's he's being vulnerable. He's just sharing in real time. I don't have it together. God's word to some of us is stop, stop photoshopping what you're going through. Some of y'all live as if you're on Instagram every second of every day, only presenting the best parts of your life. And some of you, it's your success idol. We're weak. 
Taylor Branch, who wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning book on the civil rights movement. He's got a, pr a, a pretty persuasive argument. He argues that the civil rights movement didn't start with Rosa Parks in December of 1955. He actually argues it started with Emmett Till in September of 1955. Many of us know that name, Emmett Till. He's 14 years old, lives in Chicago. His mother, Mamie, sends him down to Mississippi. While down there, uh, a, a white woman accuses him of whistling at her. Uh, they, they then lynch Emmett Till. One of the things they do to him, they put his head in a vice. Just awful things. The body is horribly disfigured, gets shipped back to Chicago. And what does his mom do? She says, oh, no, we're not closing the casket. I, I, I want to open the casket. I, I, I want, in a crazy act of vulnerability, I want to show everybody what happened. They said that one decision moved on the collective conscious of America and that that one decision is actually what started the civil rights movement and gave Rosa Parks the courage she needed a couple months later. It was the decision to be vulnerable. Rick Warren says this. I want you to get this. I want you to hear. Rick Warren says this. When we share strengths, we compete. But when we share weaknesses, we draw near in empathy and compassion. Rick Warren, right on the heels of his son committing suicide, says when we share strength, we compete. But when we share weaknesses, we draw near in empathy and compassion. How do I know I'm, I'm experiencing God's goodness right in the middle? I, I'm vulnerable and secure enough to know I can just take the lid off my life and let you know it ain't going well. Secondly, there's not only vulnerability. Secondly, there is humility. Look at verse 7. So, keep me, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. Let, let, let me just stop right there. He, he calls what he experiences with God, God's surpassing revelations. You know what that word is in the Greek? It's the Greek word hyperbole. We understand what a hyperbole, it's, a, it's an over-exaggeration to make a point. It's like me telling one of my three boys, I done told you a million times, take out the trash. I haven't told him a million times. I'm exaggerating to make a point. But when it comes to what Paul saw with God, you can't overstate it. In fact, Paul's overstatement is actually an understatement. Paul says, I was caught up in the third heaven and I saw things that were beyond. That's the idea of the word hyperbole. It, it was beyond anything I could have ever imagined. Watch this now. So here he is experiencing revelations from God. And what does God do? I, I, I done showed you too much. So I got to keep you humble. To keep you humble, I got to give you a thorn in the flesh. I, I got to give you a gift you don't want. It's one of these white elephant gifts. If you can give it away, you could. I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh. I mean, here's Paul, man. He's got one heck of a trump card. Imagine Paul being at a dinner party and someone at the dinner party saying, yeah, I had dinner with Caesar the other day, and Paul could have easily gone, let me tell you who I've met with. By the way, never underestimate the human heart's capacity to take good things and to turn them into very bad things because of our arrogance and pride. 
So he says, I, I got to keep you humble. And to keep you humble, I'm going to give you suffering. That, my friends, is one of the great gifts of suffering. I, I want you to think right now of the hardest thing you've ever gone through in your life. You got it? Think about life right before then. Maybe you're driving through your neighborhood and just going, man, what an awesome neighborhood. What a great house. What a great car. What a great life. Man, man, what about that vacation? That vacation is so great. I can't, can't wait to get on that. And then all of a sudden, the bottom falls out. And what happens to you? It's amazing. You go through something really hard, and it's amazing how little those other things matter. The things you may have boasted in. It's the gift of suffering. It realigns our perspective and priorities back to what really matters. How do I know I'm receiving God's goodness in the middle? There is vulnerability, there is humility, but thirdly, there is contentment. Look at verse 10. Paul says, for the sake of Christ." then I am content. You know, the Greek word for, for content, you know what it means? It means I'm good. <laughs> I love that. I'm good. It's in the present active indicative. Indicative simply means certainty. Like, no, 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 for real, for real, I'm good. Present active means it's just continual. I'm, I'm, I'm just good. I've shared this with you. Don't feel sorry for me. I'm, I'm actually good. I mean, this is kind of what same word Paul uses to the Philippians when he says, um, uh, you know, thank you for thinking of me with the gift. But I want you to know, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I'm good. I'm good. I'm content. My favorite show growing up was The Cosby Show, Thursday nights. One of my favorite episodes on The Cosby Show is Theo, the only boy in the family. He, he was so excited about going to this dance, um, and, and he wanted this specific designer shirt called a Gordon Gartrell. The problem was he didn't have the money for it, but his sister, Denise, said, no problem, I got you. I'll make it for you. Now, if you know anything about Denise in that show, nothing about her says Martha Stewart, sew you a shirt, none of that. But Theo says, okay, do it. And sure enough, night of the dance, she gives him the shirt, and it ain't right. Sleeves ain't the same length, collars all off, buttons all jacked up. But Theo's got to hurry up and get going. At some point, at some point, Theo reaches the conclusion, it is what it is, puts that bad boy on, I'm good. Keep living long enough, and life will throw you outfits that you never envisioned wearing. At some point, you need to just wear it. Embrace it. I'm good. I'm content. How do we access this? Let, let's go home on this. 
Paul says in verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. I don't think we talk about this enough when we, when we think of suffering. The problem with suffering, it, it isn't just the cancer. It isn't just the betrayal. The problem with suffering are the demonic messages that come with it. Do you see what Paul's saying in the text? Thorn in the flesh is giving me, given me, and then he says there was a message attached to it, a messenger of Satan to harass me. The problem with suffering isn't just physical, it's also psychological. Because so many of us, when we suffer, we don't realize there are demonic messages attached to it, and we end up buying into those messages. Someone betrays me. Demonic message. I'm worthless. I've struggled with same-sex attraction all my life, someone is saying. I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed. Nothing's changed. Demonic message. God ain't real. Walked into work, got the pink slip. Demonic message attached to it. You're a failure. But Paul says there's another message attached to suffering. The message comes from God. My grace is sufficient for you. So when you go through suffering, who are you listening to? What messages are you reading? The message may say you're worthless, but God's message is you're fearfully and wonderfully made. The demonic message may say it's the end for you, but God's message says <laughs> no weapon formed against you will prosper. The demonic message may say you can't endure this. God's message says my grace is sufficient for you. And here it is. How do I access the strength, that sufficient grace I need to navigate my weakness in such a way that God is glorified? Paul tells us, is three times I prayed. Prayer is the umbilical cord that pumps the life of God's grace and sufficiency into my weakness so that he is glorified. Isn't this what Jesus did? On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the gospel writers picture him going into the Garden of Gethsemane. They literally use the word distress. And yet when he leaves the garden, he's the picture of peace and tranquility. What changed? He prayed. Three times, like Paul, he, he prayed. And you and I are now offered salvation. Many of us have received salvation because thankfully Jesus Christ embraced his thorn in the flesh, a man of sorrows and suffering. He endured the cross so that you and I can have eternal life. If you're here this morning and you feel weak, 
You feel like you're the wrong one or wrong side of the tracks or people have said you're a failure. They've done things to you. I want you to understand you're exactly the kind of person God says I want to use. But in your weakness, will you reach out to him by faith and receive his grace? Father, thank you. Your goodness is with us in the middle of it all. It's hard for me to even say these words, but I say them because I know them to be true. Thank you for the thorns in the flesh. Thank you for suffering. I don't wish that on anybody. I don't pray that for anybody. But it's a part of our journey. So the question is not if, but James tells us it's when the trials come God, when they come, help us to navigate it in such a way that you are glorified. Give us the grace to be vulnerable. The grace to clothe ourselves in humility. The grace to be content. Even though the situation's not good, I'm good because you're good. We receive that today in Jesus' name. Amen.